Welcome back, students, to Histories and Lore of the Iron Kingdoms. I am Professor Castor, as you are all well aware. Today we will be going over the histories of Kodor, which I am very familiar with, being one of my first contracts with Kodor, all the way back when I was teamed up with Sorshka. Being a new mercenary forecaster, they don't really tell you where to go or what contract you should make. And honestly, looking back, I should have probably gone someplace a little bit warmer because the sun doesn't really shine in Kodor and I understand every year why they were so mad that Signar stole all that farmland. Another thing you learn when you hang out with Kodorans is you never know if they actually like you or not. Partially because smiling or being friendly is not a thing that comes in Kodoran friendships, if that's what you call it. I spent a good eight years freezing my toes off in the mountains of Kodor, along with the Thornwood areas, which are significantly nicer if you like swamps and trees, but no ice. That being said, let's move on to the actual histories of Kodor. We're going to be going over a general history and then some troop displacements as well. Um, all brought to you, of course, from the phenomenal writers of Privateer Press. And let's begin. We will be starting with the military of the Kadoran Empire, Loyalty, Strength, and Conquest, written by Privateer Press. The Kadoran people value strength, loyalty, and ingenuity above all else. To its enemies, Kodor is the wolf at the gates, a warlike nation characterized by its vast armies of grim-faced patriots hardened by endless winters and dedicated to the dream of an empire. Supporting these fighting forces are the lower-class masses that spend their lives toiling in the fields to feed the nations or expending their blood and labor in vast factories to keep the motherland's great warjacks lumbering towards victory. The rugged and hardy citizens of Kodor are united in their faith in the Empress, Anvanar, and in her iron ambition. It's the Kadoran thirst for conquest coupled with the mandatory military service and the esteem bestowed upon its soldiers that has enabled Kador to mobilize such a large and disciplined army. With ongoing efforts to modernize its military and optimize its industry capacity, the motherland represents one of the great powers of Western Amoran. Kodor's victories in the wars of the recent past have galvanized the population in support of the Empress and her policies, and these military success have led the other tangible gains for the motherland as well. The invasion of Lael brought vital new industry resources, raw material and technological development to Kodor, plundering the holdings of the Order of the Golden Crucible, once based in eastern Lael provided the motherland with stockpiles of alchemic substances and other useful weapons, as well as the secrets of their creation. Even more importantly, seizing the mines of Rainier, yielding additional supplies of the vital material necessary to manufacture blasting powder. Nearly all of Lael's industry, primarily the Laeldry and the former capital of Merowyn, now served to satisfy Kodor's ravenous military appetite. In appropriating these assets, Kodor has also deprived its longtime enemy, Signar, of its oldest ally. Many Kadorans now believe nothing can prevent their ultimate triumph. Next section, the Empress. In Kodor, all power ultimately trickles down from the Empress. Anvanar's powers are vast and all-encompassing, including but not limited to the ability to declare war, to write and approve laws, to have commands obeyed by the authority of law, to determine punishments for high crimes, to pardon those judged guilty by any court, and to raise and command an army and navy. Believing her to personify their nation, the people call her Vichy Ranivana. Basically, 
it translate to prime daughter of the motherland. The empress is a shrewd and powerful politician with ambitions deeper than the Cardic seas. Intent on expanding her empire, she created a new and formidable army trained for a singular purpose, the conquest of Western Amorin. Convinced her destiny is to rule all the Iron Kingdoms, she will go to any length and use any means to realize her ambition. This army has already achieved great success, having seized most of Lael's former territories and for a time driven the Signarans out of the Thornwood Forest. Empress Anne Venar has solidified her esteem in the eyes of the people through careful display of political acumen and benevolence. She possesses a fearsome reputation not only for dealing harshly with nobles who abuse their people, but also for tirelessly rooting out treachery. She deftly handles matters of religious differences in her vast nation. Though openly Morrowind, she pays considerable respect to the ranking Viscoths of the Cadorn Temple of Meneth. Her inclusion of both religions is viewed favorably by many, and she is beloved by Mennite and Morrowind faithful alike. This perception has been aided by her considerable acts of charity through which she supports the efforts of both religions to tend to the Kodor's poor and disenfranchised. Anvenar's most recent political maneuvering unified eastern and western Umbri under the rule of the great prince Vladimir Tebeski. The Umbrian had long been viewed as a rebellious, and the Tebeski bloodline comprised primarily contenders to the throne. The Empress' declaration made Umbri the largest and most powerful province, or Volov, Volosk, Volosk, Kador, and my, it's never been good. Surprise I lasted so long there. In all Kodor. At the same time, bringing the heel to several fringe elements not fully aligned with the crown, the United Volosks was made responsible for the defense of its own land, pinning a hardy Umbrian against the impending threat incursions by the North Crusade of the Protectorate of Meneth. This, in turn, freed much of Kodor's military to deal with the threats elsewhere, including bolstering the defenses in its southern borders with Signar. The unification of Umbri has followed by the announcement of the Empress's engagement to the great Prince Vladimir Tebeski, the inheritor of the storied Tebeski line and leader of the Umbrian people. This announcement promised to bring the two strongest royal lines in Kador together, with the hope that their heir will be looked upon with equal adoration by both the Umbrians and the rest of Kodor. The Tebeski family has long been suspected of harboring aspirations to the throne. With this engagement, this threat should be put to rest. By conquering dissenting opinions within her realm, Venar has prepared the empire for the conquest ahead. Also, thanks to Privateer Press, they put some side notes in here about some individuals that work alongside Queen Venar. Simonyev Blostava. The great vizier of Kodor, the Empress' closest advisor and primary chancellor, is Simonyev, great vizier of Kodor. The great vizier holds the highest appointed office in Kodor and is the only individual, other than the Empress, who can make demands of the great princes. Charged with an act, the will of the Empress, when bearing the royal writ, he speaks with her authority and must be obeyed. Blesta Yaved helps run many aspects of the empire through the power and extensive ministry of the Great Vizier, which is divided into eight sections and forms a bureaucratic hub of the capital. While this ministry has oversight over many aspects of governance, its most infamous division is Section 3, Kodor's Intelligence, Command, and Secret Police. The Grey Lord Covenant Prikov Chancellery also answers to Blastovya, putting him in charge of all Kodoran espionage. So basically, he's the King of Spies. Moving on to next section, recent conflicts. Of all the wars of Kodor has waged, 
None have proved bloodier than those conducted against the kingdom of Signar to the south. Any peace between the two great military powers has been delicate at best, with each side waiting for the opportunity to strike a devastating blow against the other. The borders they share is pockmarked with countless battlefields, both ancient and recent. With the undead multitudes of Cricks teeming throughout the Thornwood, Kodor and Signar were forced into a brief alliance to stamp out the threat to their mutual security. As soon as the Crixians were defeated, the brief alliance ended when Empress Venar launched an offensive taking advantage of Signar's weakened state as it entered the Second Civil War. The clash between Kodor and Signar extended for several months after Signar's Civil War ended with the crowning of King Julius Rathorn. The internal conflicts within Konor was over too quickly for Kodor to properly exploit the chaos, and an effort in the Thornwood proved costly and inconclusive. When Julius Rathorn sued for peace, the Empress consented acknowledging the need to rebuild reserves and strengthen Kodor's depleted treasury. The treaty was signed legitimizing Kodor's claim to occupied Lael unless a legitimate heir to Lely's throne rose to reclaim their ancestral lands. In return, Kodor agreed to quit the Thornwood, leaving the fetid swamps to the Signarans so that they might expend their own resources in its defense, thus eliminating the drain on the Empire's coffers and military might. Signar had entered into this agreement under false pretenses, however, having secreted away an heir to Lely's throne with an aim of using the stipulation of the treaty to oust Kodors from Lael without a fight. The Empress rightly refused to remove her soldiers from Lael. She saw the Southerners ploy for what it was, and would not fold to such dishonored tactics. Signar responded by attacking the city of Riversmet and declaring war against the motherland, thus sparking an escalating conflict currently spreading throughout western Amoran. While the ongoing war with Signar over the fate of Lael remains Kador's primary concern, there is no shortage of other threats facing the Empire. Fighting in Lael has not only brought Kodor into conflict with the tethered remnants of the Lely's resistance, but also with the fanatical zealots of Northern Crusade. While Kodor supports both Menite and Morrowind faiths, the strict religious doctrine of the Protectorate of Meneth and its designs on Lael have left them at odds with Kodor, making clashes between Northern Crusade and soldiers of the Empire unavoidable. The threats of the wild have likewise become a concern, as has always been the case of the Empire as large as Kodor, that spans such remote regions. Trolkin Creels of the North have been stirred into action in response to the incursion of civilization into the wilderness regions, and their assaults of the frontiersmen have not gone unanswered. Though every Kodoran is capable of combat, especially those living on the fringes of civilization, the military regularly dispatches Iron Fangs and Winter Guards to drive back the hordes of savage Trolkin when they arise. Other villages have found themselves under the attack of Dragonspawn and Blighted Nis that roam the wastes and forests in search of easy prey. While little is understood about the nature of these beasts, they too fall to the Blasting Pike and Blunderbust. These threats would be more than enough to dissuade lesser people from claiming what is rightfully theirs, but the Kadoran's resolve remains as hard and uncompromising as the lands they inhabit. Moving on, next section, High Command. One of the strengths of the Kadoran military is to centralize leadership of the High Command, an influential council serving the Empress, by overseeing the armies of the Motherland. The High Command is made up of Kodor's ruling military elite, led by Bramir Mikolhoresi, absolute commander of the Kadoran military forces. Reporting to Horsh 
are three supreme commandants who have the authority over each Kadoran's three great armies. The High Command also includes an advisory body open to all retired high-ranking officers. These esteemable men and women draw upon decades of experience to analyze current engagements and evaluate possible strategies. In 607 AR, following Kodor's first attempt to take Northgard, the Empress promoted Urisk to Supreme Commandment, while the other Supreme Commandants continued to oversee logistical and planning for their armies. Urisk was given command in the field. Some members of High Command argue that Urisk's ability to countermand their orders critically compromised the High Command's authority. Empress Venar, however, maintains that High Command exists primarily to advise the Sovereign and formulate top-level strategy, not to lead soldiers fighting hundreds of miles away. The High Command is served by an extensive hive of clerks and supply workers who maintain vital military correspondence and ever-increasing vault of military records. A high volume of information passes through High Command on a daily basis, including a constant stream of incoming requests and outgoing orders. One of the most important tasks handled by the bureaucracy is the military's payroll. Many Kadoran soldiers defer significant portions of their wages to their families, and the efficient administration system allows the motherland's soldiers to feel confident their loved ones are being taken care of. Moving on to Armies of the Motherland. Kadoran forces are divided into three armies, each answering to the High Command and with Supreme Commandant dedicated to its direct oversight. With Supreme Commandant Urisk presence in the field to make a snap judgments as required by ongoing operations, this system has served to keep the Kadoran armies functioning smoothly and prevent top-level miscommunications. The current Kadoran military doctrine was concisely described in Urisk's defined tomb on conquest. Ooh, I can't wait to talk about Urisk. He is a phenomenal commander, respected by military leaders all over the Iron Kingdom. This book on modern warfare is now required reading of all military academics throughout the Iron Kingdoms. First established the current three army systems of Kodor, the Anvil, the Hammer, and the Forge. Kodor's first army corresponds to the Anvil, the second army, the hammer, and the third army is the forge. The anvil is intended to establish hardened positions that are impossible to rout, while the hammer strikes where it is needed, and the forge defends the motherland and trains her capable soldiers. The winter guard serves as the backbone of three armies, redressing any shortcomings of conscripted soldiers or several highly specialized branches, including the powerful heavy infantry, skilled cavalry, and snipers and reconnaissance forces. The First Army, the Anvil. The First Army, or the Anvil, is called upon Kadoran's protracted engagements, and its soldiers have been trained and conditioned for stamina. In theory, the First Army is intended to engage and tie up enemy forces across large areas until the Second Army, the Hammer, is ready to strike. The officers of the Anvil consider themselves to be Kadoran's foremost experts in enduring sieges. In practice, the anvil is most often relied upon to hold conquered territories and to assimilate them into the empire. The first army played a major role in the invasion of Lael and its subsequent subjugation, and many Lely cities are still garrisoned by its soldiers. Since Kadoran forces withdrew from the Thornwood, the bulk of the first army has returned to Lael to safeguard vital holdings there, including industrial capacities harnessed for the military production. Active resistance within Kadoran Lael has greatly diminished thanks to the effort of the First Army. Though recent renewed conflicts with Signar have put this region directly in harm's way, likewise the Anvil has continually held the ground against the protectorate forces amassing in the east where clashes between the First Army and the Northern Crusade have become routine. 
The First Army is nominally commanded by Supreme Commandant Ivan Kresnovich of the High Command, but Commander Indovich, again, Kadoran last name, so just these guys are just really hard to pronounce, who controls the army from Merowin has operational command. Indonovich is credited by Supreme Commander Ursk as being instrumental in the swift and successful conquest of Lael, in large part due to his oversight of supply lines during the rapid invasion. The Second Army, the Hammer. The Second Army, also known as the Hammer, specializes in delivering crushing offensive and therefore included in largest numbers of assault legions, warjacks, and heavy infantry of the three armies. Where the First Army trains in surviving sieges, the Second Army is best at conducting them against the enemy. During the invasion of Lael, the Hammer laid siege to Essenberg, Laeldry, Redwall Fortress, and later Marowin. And the second was also instrumental in Kodor's subsequent operations against both Crix and Signar in the Thornwood, including the seizure of Northgard and the final assault of the Necrofactorium. With these victories, its current reign reigns the most esteemed of Kodor's armies and the most new recruits seeking action asked to be assigned to the Hammer. Though Supreme Commandant Urisk was in direct command of all Kodoran forces during these engagements, he is most strongly associated with the Second Army and particularly with the 4th Legion of the 3rd Division. These hand-picked officers and soldiers have fought under Urisk longer than any other person and are among the Motherland's most battle-hardened troops. The 2nd Army falls under the purview of the Supreme Commandant Boris Morkovov, who was promoted to this position following the death of Alex Gorskov. Morkov has been the field commander of the 2nd under... I'm not going to try to say his name again, I'm just going to butcher it. Since the invasion of Lael. He is close ally and friend to Urisk, and was placed in charge of governing the former Lely's capital, Merowin. Due to his success in the overseeing of this city, Markarov remains in Lael, which is required accommodations with the High Command. In his stead, the Great Prince Sergio Morvov, commandant of the 4th Division, has remained in course to coordinate the Supreme Commandant on the 1st and 3rd Armies and the Premier. The great prince was glad to stay in the capital to manage his political affairs while Markarov governs Merowin. As in the common, the great prince serving in such posts, his leadership of the 4th Division is something of an honorary position. Actual field command of the 4th Division is shared between several capable subordinate officers when Ursk is not personally directing these forces. In the aftermath of Kador's withdrawal from Thornwood, the 2nd Army has undergone substantial reorganization and resupply, having returned to full combat strength and rank and file of the 2nd once more to march to war, actively engaging against Signar's armies in Lael, working alongside elements of the 1st Army. Moving on to the 3rd Army, the Forge. The 3rd Army, or the Forge, is responsible for training and supply. It also maintains garrisons in Kodor cities and oversees the five border legions that safeguard the motherland's vast perimeter. The Forge operates numerous military prisons, border crossings, and training grounds, in addition to governing the military city of Volengrad. Most measures of the Forge is less of a single cohesion fighting force than the other two armies. Along with the border legions, it comprises six distinct elements that have little contact with one another. The third retains a dubious distinction of being the most far-flung army of the Empire. Its soldiers operate as far northwest as Oldenfrost and as far south as Ravensgards, more than 600 miles apart. 
Garrison Kador's interior seem as the easiest and least dangerous assignment in the army. Such postings bestow very little prestige, yet are highly desired by those with strong ties to family, such as the young fathers. Recent years, however, have seen many unexpected threats challenge the Kadoran interior, making the defense of the cities both more vital and more dangerous than before. Among the most dreaded of these horrors are rampant dragonspawn, blightedness, and the Ogren that first emerged from the northern fringes of the Empire starting at 606 AR. This periodic menace remains a problem in remote areas, and the Kadoran intelligence has struggled to acquire useful information on this foe. Some of these hostile elements have reportedly moved on to other areas, fleeing into rural and beyond, but reports of such attacks persist, particularly in the Northwest. Other internal threats include unrest among the Trollkin Creels, particularly north of Scarsfell Forest in the Northwest, and attacks in other remote regions has led to an enigmatic Blackclads. It falls to the Third Army and its garrisons to stand ready to react to such unexpected and unconventional attacks. In addition to protecting Kodor citizens, the Third Army must secure vital industries like logging and mining. The forge benefits from the authority of Supreme Commandant Mitschik of the High Command. Direct oversight falls to Great Prince Karl Zavetti, who also administers Druzna. Commandant Constant Zukovi commands the 5th Division, which also includes other five border legions. The larger 6th Division is overseas training and reserves its command to Commandant Gresko Antonovich? Man, I'm glad I don't work up there anymore because I would just be brutalized for these savage attacks on these people's poor name. Most active soldiers in the Third Army serve in the Border Legions. The First Border Legion was once positioned along Kador's border with Lael and has traditionally been headquartered at Ravensgard. Much of the first was sent south to occupy Thornwood during Kodor's recent conflicts with Signar, following Kodor's withdrawal from the Thornwood. The First Border Legion returned to Ravensgard. It now patrols the nearby borders of Signar and is sometimes tasked with operations inside Lael. The Fifth Border Legion defends the western portion of Kodor's border with Signar, as well as a portion of Ordic borders. Which is weird since Ord likes to remain neutral in most other people's conflicts. This much-esteemed legion earned its initial fame during the First Thornwood War, stalwartly fighting Signar despite heavy losses. This fighting force never gave up the battle against Signar and barely restrains its hostility for the southerners even in times of peace. The second, third, and fourth border legions are considerably smaller and generally less distinguished than the first or the fifth. The second is charged with garrisoning Kodor's quiet border with rule. Though historically has been little risk of death in combat for those who join the second border legion, many of the army dread the service for the freezing cold and monotony of life in its far northern mountains post. Recent legion has had greater share of battles against dragonspawn and other hazards. It's nice the Rulik people don't really wage war against us, or leave their mountain in general. Although to see a Rulik army though is always the most impressive thing I have seen. The third border legion garrison Kodor's northern interior. This legion has a dark legacy as it is rumored to obey Zavana Aga, the old witch of Kodor. Speaking on the witch though, terrifying old lady. Pretty sure she's eaten somebody. I don't think that's just a rumor. I wouldn't be surprised if it wasn't just one person. I'm not even sure if she's a lady. Or a demon. We'll discuss her in later chapters.
While never actually officially assigned to the Old Witch, the officers of the Third Border Legion grimly follow her orders when they are given. Though its activities are rarely discussed in the past decades, the Third has come to greater prominence in recent years due to the efforts of the battle in inexplicitly threats such as the Dragon Spawn and the Blackclads plaguing Kadoran's towns and many remote regions of the North. The presence of the Third appearing unexpectedly and without warning has become something of a bad omen, besaging ill fortune or imminent bloodshed. It's almost like the Witch knew. The Fourth Border Legion watches the majority of Kodor's borders with Ord and has endured the least hardship, but also the least glory of the fighting forces. It is customary, however, that Kodor enforces in the region to conduct periodic strikes and raids against Ordic defenses to test for weaknesses. Sometimes joined by young warcasters in need of field experience, occasionally Ordic reprisals combined with mercenary forces require the Legion to remain in high alert and ready for such action. Great training exercises, life or death situations, perfect for new guys. May have lost a finger. Moving on to the Kadoran Navy. In the recent years, no branch of the Kadoran military has suffered such defeat or experienced such revitalization as the Kadoran Navy. The Navy has traditionally lacked the honor lavished upon an army by the motherland citizens and rulers. Indeed, throughout the history, this military branch has been underfunded as well as underappreciated. Nevertheless, the High Command has acutely aware of the strength of sea possessed by the southern rivals. Signar, as well as a sizable and highly trained fleet, as the neighboring nation of Ord. In 606 AR, the relative weakness of the Gador Navy was made evident by the massive Crixian attack that destroyed much of its fleet in Port Vlavadora. Fleet Admiral Pavel Nahimov took his own life shortly after the disgrace was and was replaced by Jazek Danikev, a new fleet admiral. In the years since the disaster, Danikev has worked tirelessly to restore Kador's naval might. His first battle was not at sea, but in the halls of bureaucracy. As he strived to get the funding necessary, not only to replace ships lost during the attack, but also to modernize his forces with iron hulls and steam sail hybrids. Come to think of it, I suppose you don't see too many Kadoran ships since most of their ports are usually iced over most of the year. Donikev has worked hard to institute better discipline among the enlisted sailors. In addition to raising standards, the fleet admiral has sought able bodies wherever he can find them. Several Kardastats, not sure how to pronounce that, have been emptied of prisoners to fill the crews of the fleets, and many of the conscripts have been surprised by the harsh discipline employed by the Kadoran Navy. Officers are also feeling the heat of Donikev's attention. The fleet admiral has singled out the most aggressive captains for rapid rise through the ranks, while those who have lost their taste for war are forced to retire. Donikev intends to do nothing less than revolutionize the whole of the Gador Navy. His tireless efforts could not have come at a moment too soon. With the growth of Gador's colony in Zoo and in other expeditions abroad, the motherland has had to move quickly to protect the flows of goods and trades from the increasing predation of pirates and privateers. Never before has the strong naval presence been so necessary to the Empire's security. Alrighty guys, we're going to be going to service branches, which kind of breaks up everything into uh, smaller portions of the armies, a little more specialized areas. The core of the Kadoran army is composed of soldiers of the Winter Guard supported by warcasters and their battle groups of warjacks. 
specialist forces, and a well-managed logistic bureaucracy. Kodor's specialist forces include assault commandos, iron fangs, man-of-war, widowmakers, scout snipers, the enigmatic gray lords, and various auxiliary forces. Warcasters. The Gadoran military has become more regimented by modern reforms, but enormous liberties are still afforded to those rare few who manifest the ability to mentally control warjacks. Such individuals once identified and extensively trained and rapidly advanced through the ranks. Empress Anne Vanar and her predecessors have demonstrated the willingness to adapt the needs of these men and women and even indulge them. Parental treatment includes virtual immunity to criminal prosecution and tremendous leeway when conducting missions against the enemy. Though warcasters are technically obligated to obey the dictates of high command, they tend to operate outside the ordinary chain of command, including being given operational control over battlefields in which they confront foes of the motherland. Explains why Orzos, also known as the Butcher, is still a ranking officer. Side note, the armies of the Great Princes. The Great Princes retain special liberties including the right to raise and equip armies of liegemen for war. Though some nobles have voluntarily abandoned this privilege to concede their vassals to the sovereign and high command as officers in the Gadorn army, others have preserved their martial traditions as a matter of familiar pride. Many of those vassals who served the armies of the Melodin for a time returned to their ancestral lords, giving the small armies of great princes a professionalism and discipline that bellies their provincial origins. And back to Warcasters. Most Warcasters emerge from the ranks of the military, their innate talents revealed by the stress of combat. Others arise from prominent sorceress lines or are discovered through a diligent recruiting efforts of the Greylord Covenant. Scholars of Kodor's insist certain families' lines possess higher potential for this aptitude, and each manifestations of power is carefully documented and examined. The Greylord Covenant oversees the initial training of those not yet versed in arcane theory. Apprentice warcasters then undergo officer training at the Druzina before being assigned to a senior warcaster for mentoring. Upon the completion of this training, warcasters are promoted to the rank of captain in the Kadoran army. The Winter Guard. Comprising the majority of the Gadoran military, by substantial margins, the men and women of the Winter Guard provide the foundation for nearly every substantial combat fielded by the Empire. Service to the Winter Guard is a common denominator for Gadorans. As all conscripts enter the military as part of the Winter Guard, unless they are accepted into a more elite branch of military, Winter Guard soldiers are typically trained in use of small arms and light artillery. Guardsmen who serve in Kador's city garrisons receive additional training in urban combat and pacification. Which makes sense if you need to keep the populace under control. Looking at you, Butcher of Kordov. Assault Commandos. The Assault Commandos were instituted with the intention of giving Kador the edge against Signar in the trench warfare that bogged down the Motherland's forces following the invasion of Lael in 604 AR. Signars have long enjoyed the advantage in this type of conflict because of their superbly trained trench units an imbalance that has been eliminated since the first assault commandos took to the field. Only the hardiest new recruits ever make it into the ranks of the commandos. Heavily armed and armored, these troops augment their battle training with advanced alchemical weaponry. They advance on enemy trenches and fortifications behind the walls of shields before opening fire with carbines and short-range grenade launchers that poison the air with choking gas. 
The assault commandos are led by the warcaster Oleg Strakov, the legend of the Lely's War. Once the invasion of Lael had transitioned from war into occupation, Strokov was assigned to help further modernize the Kadorn army. His suggestions led to the formation of the assault commandos, whom he would lead. Since then, Strokov and his commandos have executed the High Command's most dangerous missions, and they proved pivotal in the Kadorn victory at Northgard. Virtually all the armaments carried by the commandos resulted from chemical knowledge seized from the Order of the Golden Crucible in Lael. The strangle gas emitted by their grenades is alchemically refined to a heavier than air so that it will settle into the trenches whether it is not easily dispersed by the winds and this armor is treated to resist fire and acid. That explains why the Order of the Golden Crucible is now in Ord. We'll get to them later. Moving on to Iron Fangs. Serving as an elite cadre with the Ghidorin military as well as being the most numerous heavy infantry, soldiers in the army. The Iron Fangs are inheritors of the ancient tradition of Cardic pikemen. With mechanical precision, they flow as a single wall of steel bristling with devastating blasting pikes designed to fell warjacks on the battlefield. Their training allows them to virtually ignore the weight of their heavy armor on the field, wearing it as if it were a second skin. A soldier accepted into the Brotherhood swear a blood oath to his fellow soldiers, to his country, and to the art of war. From then on, the Iron Fang knows that he will be sent into the most intense fighting in every battle in which his company is included, and his shared duty will be to find the most dangerous enemies and destroy them or die trying. That explains a lot. I always thought they were just a little suicidal. Advancing ahead of the Iron Fang formation are the Ulans, peerless horsemen steeped in the legendary traditions of their forebears. Many descend from the horse lords of old scions of Kodor's great and noble lines. Their lances bear blasting charges similar to those of the pikemen, lending even greater impact into their powerful charges. Moving on to Black Dragons. Black Dragons are distinguished from Iron Fang veterans who have refused to retire from service despite advancing age. Their signature black and gold armor and dragon emblazoned heraldry stands apart from the crimson and steel of the other Iron Fangs, a bold testament to their skill, ferocity, and perseverance. Uh, there's one alternative to retiring. I kind of like just teaching the class, though. Moving on to Manowar. Encased in mechanical armor that grants them the strength of steam jacks, the Manowar soldiers are Kador's heavy infantry. Lacking the resources to produce great numbers of warjack-quality cortexes, Kador prefers to build the heaviest warjacks possible. Instead of relying on the light warjacks fielded by rival powers, Kador turns its great resources, its people, into steam-powered engines of tireless destruction. Slow and ponderous, yet able to weather the storm of battle, Manowar troops both hold battle lines and advance into the heaviest enemy positions. Despite the obvious strength and impenetrable granted by their armor, drawbacks do exist. The steam boiler integrated into the armor's metal shell makes Manowar troops susceptible to heat strokes and exhaustion. Worse, the occasional steam leak can cook the soldier alive, yet Manowar soldiers never complain or ask for comfort. They are proud of their traditions and are willingly embrace the risk in order to serve their country. Support mechanics frequently travel alongside Manowar platoons to see to their armor, and so long as equipment is properly maintained, fatal accidents are rare. Also, if you've ever wondered what a human smells like in a steam cooker, 
You can hang out with the units, you'll eventually find out. I'm gonna say something close to boiled chicken, but uh, you really have to smell it to find out. The Widowmakers. Widowmakers form the elite scout sniper division of the Kadoran military, which has embraced and elevated them into the status of national heroes. The standard to join this force is among the most stringent of all Kador's specialist branches. And only those riflemen who demonstrate peerless skills are accepted. Because the Widowmakers are first and foremost a merit-based corpse, membership is open to any who possess the requisite skills, whether peasant-born, rural hunter, or noble blood. Widowmakers' primary role is the foment chaos among the enemies by neutralizing key officers. They frequently advance ahead of the main force, their arrival indicated by enemy officers abruptly falling dead even before the report of rifle fire can be heard. They also support withdrawals by ensuring their own wounded avoid capture. If downed officer cannot be retrieved, Widowmakers accept the grim task of denying the enemy a living prisoner. In addition to their primary purpose of snipers, Widowmakers also serve as forward scouts and are skilled at making use of terrain to remain unseen as they gauge the enemy. Gathering military reconnaissance and preventing the enemy from doing the same gives them the value and utility well beyond the number of those who slay by rifle. It was once quoted, It's better to die by a comrade's bullet than at the shackles of the enemy, in Kadoran lore. Moving on to the Irregulars. Kadoran law requires all of its citizens to serve in the military, even those who live in the farthest reaches of the empire. Because these rugged individualist and clannish people usually do not integrate well into the strict hierarchies of the military, the high command allows them to encamp separately from the regular army and follow commanders promoted from within their own clans, tribes, or villages. Such irregulars are often drawn from the Kazite clans and other rural folk in the far north. Operating in tight bands, irregulars benefit from lifetimes of familiarity with their comrades, given general orders from their superiors, they stage devastating ambushes before melting back into the forest. The most dangerous irregulars are the hunters and trappers who prowl the backwoods of Kodor alone, pitting their skills against the savage citizens of the wild and sometimes taking work as bounty hunters. Irregulars may also serve alongside regular soldiers who are acting as scouts or advanced forces. Their familiarity with the deep woods of the north allow them to navigate terrain otherwise impassable to normal foot soldiers. Senior Widowmakers are often given authority over Irregulars attached to give given companies or battalions, coordinating scouting efforts and perimeter controls. At least they have a job they're good at. And the Old Witch loves these guys. Moving on to the Greylord Covenant. The Greylord Covenant is a premier occult of the orders in the service of the Motherland and is effectively the arcane branch of the Gadorn military. Accomplished arcanists, patriots, and soldiers together make up the most formidable organization in Western Amoran. Individual Grey Lords are integrated into the army, usually in small teams, and serve alongside infantry officers. But their leader, the High Abovnik Arbiter, answers to the great Vizier Somezev. Blas again, man, Kador names. They just do not roll off the tongue. Not the High Command. Grey Lords are sometimes tasked with specialist assignments and secret priorities as an aspect of their occult expertise, which makes some officers uneasy. I feel like the occult makes a lot of people uneasy. Especially what they study. You'll find that out later. The Order provides Kodor with Cortexes and Complex Mechanica. 
Offers arcane expertise, supplies trained battle arcanists to the military, assists in identification and training of warcasters, and sees to the internal security of the nation. Their varied role and tactical flexibility offered by their arcane abilities make them highly valued specialists. Leaders among the Order have often have political influence well beyond their rank, and Grey Lord Covenant as an organization is both wealthy and well-connected. Initiates enter the organization with ranks of Yukonek. These neophytes come from a wide variety of backgrounds, and their only commonality being the aptitude for the arcane. Ukoneks spend years as menial servants while learning the fundamentals of arcane theory and military history before promotion to Rustavik. Rustavik. There you go, got it eventually. Rustavik is a junior member of the Greylord Covenant, roughly equivalent to a lieutenant in a regular army. After five years or more of faithful service, Greylords may be promoted to the rank of Maxiv. A Maxiv holds a rank loosely equivalent to a captain and is considered fully qualified for all the regular tasks expected of a Greylord. Maxivs, who make a career of military service, are expected to attend the Druzina and earn the right to join the Turnian, a trio of Arcanist specialists in the application of battle magic who train and fight together. Turnians are typically made up of two Maxiv and a commanding Kolden. When not on active duty, a Maxiv is expected to contribute to the covenants in research, intelligent gathering, and cortex production. A Maxiv with an impeccable service record and solid connection with influential members of the Covenant may eventually be promoted to a Kolden. While virtually all Koldens have some military experience, many choose more prestigious postings later in life in which they supervise training, production, and research facilities. A Kolden holds a rank roughly equivalent to a Kovnik in the Kadoran army. The Kolden specifically reorganized by the Empress may have a lordship bestowed upon them. The rank of Colden Lord brings honor and privilege loosely equivalent to a knighthood and the equivalent rank of commander. Those granted lordship also receive token lands, minor titles, and possible other honors. Abaviniks are a Penoblet leader of the order. Although there is no fixed number of Abaviniks, there are rarely more than nine at a time. This rank is typically reserved to the Greylords who command strongholds or chapter houses. The Abaviniks has a rank equivalent to commandant in the Kadoran army. It is not uncommon for the high command to consult the Abaviniks regarding occult issues affecting ongoing operations or future plans. Overseeing the Grey Lord's Covenant is a high-ranking Abavnik Arbiter who exercises absolute authority over the entirety of the Order its central stronghold in Korsk, the Strakoya. The Empress appoints the High Abavnik Arbiter under the advisement of Prikov Chancellery and the Great Vizier. Without fail, each Abovnik promoted to this position is an arcanist of superior skill, acute military insight, and unquestionable patriotism. The rank carries with it the title of Count. In practice, the High Abovnik Arbiter enjoys authority only slightly less than that of the Supreme Commandant, and is essentially the Great Vizier's expert counselor on matters involving Mechanica and the Arcane. Great Vizier is also a regular contact with the head of the Cause Chancellery, a secret Greylord office dedicated to the internal security. 
Members of the Precos operate outside the normal chain of command. The Grey Lord Covenant maintains five great strongholds, the foremost being Strakoya. Smaller strongholds exist in Kardov, Ak, Rushik, and Skirov. All of them are formidable fortresses, nearly impervious to attack and infiltration, and are homes to workshops, laboratories, libraries, and living quarters for members of the Covenant. The Covenant also maintains lesser holdings, called chapter houses in cities and towns with significant Greylord presence. Under the reign of Empress Venar, the Covenant has become an increasingly pervasive tool of the government. High-ranking Greylords lead significant military efforts including the governance of captured cities, the direction of mechanical and arcane innovations, and the coordination of the nation's internal security apparatus. I always found it interesting they use magicians as part of their secret operations. It's almost like they're always looking for forecasters or anybody making mess. I wonder if there's any other nations that are hunting them, perhaps. We'll discuss that later. Moving on to Doom Reavers. The Kadoran commitment to victory at any cost is plainly evident in their use of the dreaded Doom Reavers. Commanded by Arcanists of the Greylord Covenant, Doom Reavers are conscripted from the ranks of convicted criminals. Most often soldiers found guilty of gross insubordination. The Grey Lords chain these men to the nightmarish spellblades, relics, weapons once crafted by the Orgoth, a fate some argue is worse than death. The earliest known fellblades were unearthed among the cache of Orgoth artifacts that lay beneath the haunted city of Kardov. Saturated with dark magic, the swords are adorned with howling faces that shift eerily from at the fringes of vision and seem to come alive when wielded. The first swordsmen, unfortunate enough to pick up these powerful weapons, descended into savage homicidal madness, spurred on by incomprehensible whispering in their minds. Even during sleep, the swordsmen heard foreign babbling that urged them to acts of bloodshed. These men lashed out with berserk abandon and double strength, killing anyone that crossed their path. Since then, the Grey Lords have studied the Fellblades and found ways to restrain the bloody impulses of those who wield them. At least, off the battlefield. Set loose in war, Doom Reavers exhibit only minimal control and may strike down anyone, friend or foe, as the bloodlust grows. Inexplicably, some Doom Reavers can maintain their sense of self, while others are driven irrevocably mad. Even those who maintain their sanity, however, are forever changed. Such soldiers are typically confined to the outskirts of the Gadoran camps, where their unnerving lunacy can disturb neither man nor beast. Their oversight is generally handed by Grey Lord attendants, specialized in work with those who enforce obedience. I suppose that is, you will fight for Kodor, or Kodor will make you fight for Kodor. Moving on to Gadorn Mechanic Assembly. Based out of the Regivna complex in Korsk, the Gadorn Mechanics Assembly, or the KMA, has partnered with Gadorn Military since it was founded in 393 AR. The mechanics, smiths, and engineers of the August organization are the undisputed mechanical experts of the nation, responsible for designing, fabricating, and maintaining all Kadorn warjacks as well as man of war armors. The Brotherhood engineers' philosophies inevitably trickle down to private industries. For example, Kadorn laborjacks designed are largely inspired by the work of the KMA. KMA wields considerable influence in Kodor, in no small part because Great Vizier Blesavada began his rise to power in Korsk as director of munitions 
at the Rigneva complex. KMA has recently expanded its operation to create a sizable secondary foundry in Marowin, and other occupied cities may eventually lend additional production capacity. Alright class, that will do it for the kind of overview of the Kadoran lore and military. Um, I want to make an apology to all Kadoran names that I have butchered. All the Kadoran names that I will butcher in the future. Next week we will actually be going in-depth on the Warcasters of Kodor. Most likely some arcane traditions, recruitment and training. And we may even have some time next class to actually start discussing some of the major Warcasters in the Kadoran army. Alright, well that will do it for today's class. Um, if you have any questions, please feel free to hit us up on our social medias or our emails as well. We would love to interact with everybody the best we can. Also, another thank you to Privateer Press for creating all this phenomenal lore of the Iron Kingdoms and letting us read it in our classes. Also, homework. Please feel free to share this with anyone that also might be interested in the Iron Kingdoms or War Machines or Hordes lore. And you guys have a phenomenal day, and we'll see you next week.